Well, it's great to see everybody talking and having a good time. But we can also continue these conversations afterward. Don't feel like you have to run off after the service is over. You can go out in the lobby, hang out, grab a seat together, and talk all of that stuff afterward. Sorry, Bill. What's that? I started it, so I'm the one to blame. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. People are going to think that I just threw that in there last minute just so I could go collect myself and not, uh, but it was planned, I promise you. Um, today we're going to talk about Acts chapter 18, and uh, we're going to talk about purpose. What is your purpose in life? Uh, purpose is, I, I think, such a critical thing today. A lot of people are just floating through life without any kind of purpose in life. And this has a lot of negative effects on us. A lack of purpose can lead to a lot of anxiety. Not that all anxiety comes from a lack of purpose. But if you feel like you don't have purpose in your life, then you probably find yourself focusing a lot more on what you lack or on insecurities or just things that have to do with you inside. And, and a lack of purpose, purpose is focused on something that's outside of you. And so not having that can lead to a tremendous amount of introspection and anxiety in our life. Lack of purpose can also lead to depression. Again, not all depression comes from a lack of purpose, but not feeling like you have a sense of purpose in life can cause you to feel like, man, am I even contributing anything to this world? Uh, am I just a drain on resources? Is there any reason for me to you know, go on and be a part of this? And so depression and even suicide, sometimes that can come about, at least in part because of a lack of purpose in our lives. Lack of purpose can lead us to pursue pleasure over impact. So when we're thinking about what am I going to do with my time, if there's something that I really enjoy doing, I may choose that over something that's going to make a difference in the world if I don't have much of a sense of purpose in my life. But if I have a sense of purpose, then, then there's a drive there to, to want to go do something that's bigger than myself, be a part of something that's going to make a difference beyond myself. And so lack of purpose ultimately leads to a lack of growth. Because if I don't have a purpose to accomplish something greater, to be involved in something bigger than me, if I don't have that purpose in my life, then why would I pursue growing and learning to go put that into action and make a difference in the world? Now, I'm not saying that everyone's purpose is good. Some purposes can be pretty negative and damaging. But not having any sense of purpose at all can also be very negative and damaging. And what I want to talk about today in Acts 18 has to do with your purpose in life and maybe finding it in places or ways that you don't necessarily expect. Because for some people, I think they tie purpose a bit too much with what would appear to be success or maybe a different version of success or a very public view of success, you know, to be, to be prominent, to be known, to, to have resources, to drive the right car, live in the right house or have the right paycheck or zip code or high school, whatever it is. And so a purpose can sometimes be confused with what we perceive as being success. But what we see in our text today are really three examples of purposeful lives that look different. And maybe you'll find yourself in one of those. We're going to start in Acts 18, verse 18. So if you've got your Bible already turned there, we're going to read that in just a minute. Would you just pause and pray for me uh, and pray with me? Pray that God would speak through me today and that God would open your hearts to receive that message. And maybe he's going to communicate to you something completely different than what I'm going to say. That's fine. But as long as he meets with us here today and helps us to grow in how he wants us to live, that's what matters. So let's all bow our heads. Just close our eyes. Focus on our Heavenly Father. 
Lord, we are so thankful that you would wanna call us your children and that you came to this earth and died for us to give us new life. God, it's amazing. And you've transformed my life and my heart and you've transformed so many lives and people's lives here. Just hearing some of the stories even today of the work that you've been doing, it's amazing. You are at work, you are on the move. And I pray that today would be a, a step on that journey for some people. Um, that you would open our hearts to hear uh, what Luke has recorded for us in Acts and teach us something that really makes a difference, God, and how we view you, how we view our life in this world, how we view our purpose, and how we can make a difference for you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray all of this. Amen. So Acts chapter 18, verse 18, let's read this. We'll put it up on the screens, but you'll want to have it in front of you too. Paul stayed in Corinth for some time after that. Then said goodbye to the brothers and sisters and went to nearby Centria. There he shaved his head according to Jewish custom, marking the end of a vow. Then he set sail for Syria, taking Priscilla and Aquila with him. So it's interesting here that Paul made some kind of vow, and we don't really know anything about it. We don't know exactly why he made it, but the fact that he shaved his head at the end tells us it was likely a Nazarite vow. Does anyone remember another character in the Bible who took a Nazarite vow, had the vow of a Nazarite? Samson, right. And what, what did that mean? He had to not drink wine or hard, uh, hard um, heavy drink, as they called it in the Bible. Hard liquor, basically. He had to not go near a dead body. And there was one other thing he couldn't do. He couldn't cut his hair, right? And so Paul evidently took this same vow for a period of time. And this is talked about in number six. There's a Nazarite vow. Men and women can take it for a, a period of time. They determine to abstain from certain things so that they can grow closer in the relationship with God, show their dedication to him, grow in their self-discipline in that. And Paul evidently took this vow of a Nazarite. And when that time was completed, he shaved his head to show, okay, that's it. I did the vow. My hair grew out and now I shaved it off. And so the time of my vow has ended. And there's a couple of things that are interesting about this. It's a, it almost seems like a weird thing that Luke would include this. It doesn't have anything else to do with what comes before it or after it. So why is it in there? But it does actually tell us something because later on when Paul would write his letter to the Corinthians and he would say, doesn't nature itself teach you that it's a shame for men to have long hair? We know that he's not saying men can never have long hair because this vow meant Paul couldn't cut his hair for a period of, an extended period of time. And then he shaved it to, to show that he was done with his vow. And we know that there are many characters throughout the Bible that had long hair and nothing's mentioned about that. Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, was making a point about the gender design that God has and the gender norms and honoring that. He was not saying men can never have long hair. So that's one thing that's interesting um, about this whole passage and the fact that he had a vow. But the other thing that's interesting to me about it is that it reminds me of how little we actually know of the biblical story. Because there's probably a whole other element of this vow and why Paul made it and what led him to do it and what all he abstained from and how long the period was and what that was like for him and how he grew through it and, and the influence he had on people around him. I mean, there's so much more to that story. And we get one sentence. He shaved his head, according to Jewish custom, marking the end of a vow. That's it. That's all we know. And so I think it's so neat that there's so much more to this that one day when we get to eternity, we're hopefully going to have these heavenly documentaries 
or we're going to get to go back and see like what all happened in this time, you know, or I'm looking forward to being able to just, you know, walk up to some device in heaven and say, hey, heaven, tell me about the time when Paul had that vow and what that was like for him, you know, and just have it share that with in 3D, you know, in a hologram. Like, I want to see exactly what happened. That's going to be so cool. There's so much more to the biblical story. And we just get these snapshots of it. And uh, that is just absolutely fascinating to me. But what's also fascinating about this is that Paul made a point at this point in his life to give up certain things, sacrifice certain things for some kind of a bigger purpose. And no, we don't know what the details are, but we do know that Paul valued putting things aside for a while, sacrificing personal pleasures and desires for a while to focus on his relationship with God. It makes me think of a season in the liturgical calendar that many people celebrate every year. Anybody know what that is? Lent, right? And Lent is not a biblical thing itself. It's a man-made tradition, but it's based on the same idea of we're going to fast from something for a while to focus on our relationship with God. And Paul had so much purpose in his life that at times it seemed he needed to sacrifice something in his life to focus on that purpose for him. And sometimes having that period of fasting from something can actually help you find and identify your purpose because it clears your head and helps you to focus on things that you may not have seen before. Now, moving on to verse 19, it says, they stopped first at the port of Ephesus where Paul left the others behind. While he was there, he went to the synagogue to reason with the Jews. Now, here we are again at the synagogue. Okay, this is the cycle we've seen over and over again. Paul goes to a new place. He goes to the synagogue. He reasons with the Jews. Some people accept. Some people reject. Like that cycle just happens again and again. And as pastors, uh, speaking for me and John and Andrew, who've been preaching lately in this series, we're looking at that and going, what are we going to teach about this time? Because it seems like it's the same pattern over and over. And it's good because it forces us to go deep and say, okay, what, what is fresh about this? What is new about this? And, uh, and we're actually going to find some of that stuff here. Some little different nuances that are very interesting to us. First of all, in verse 20, when Paul decides that he's going to uh, move on, in verse 20, it says, they asked him to stay longer, but he declined. They asked him to stay longer, but he said no. And I just think that's fascinating that Luke put us, put this little note in here. Like they wanted him to stay and that was a good thing. They wanted more teaching from Paul. They wanted him to be involved in their lives. They wanted him to reach more people for Jesus. And he said, no, wasn't that a cold thing for Paul to do? How could he reject such a, a good and godly request? I mean, it does tell us that the Jews here in Ephesus, they received the message. Well, that's good. But Paul, how could you abandon these people? How could you leave them there? They just want more teaching. They want more gospel in their community. Why would you say no to such a good thing? But here's the thing. Paul's purpose drove him to say no to something good so he could say yes to something better. We know Paul's purpose was to go preach the gospel in places where it had not been known. And so his purpose to keep moving on and go to new places and share the gospel with people and keep moving around, that purpose drove him to say no to something good so he could say yes to something better. I have found that we as Christians can be very good at over-spiritualizing things to the point where when we think something's a good idea or we have feelings about something or desires for something, we can start to confuse that with, well, that must be what God wants. That must be the spiritual thing to do. And here, I'm sure there were people in Ephesus that thought, 
what is Paul thinking? Why would he leave us? We're asking him to do good things. And yet Paul knew that sometimes you have to say no to something good to say yes to something better. And I wonder if that might be the case for some of us right now. If there are good things that we're involved in that are good things. You know, a lot of times we preach against the bad things, and that's true. But there are good things that we might be involved in that we actually need to say no to. Your life is like a river or a delta. You know, a river has a strong stream of water that runs deep, and a delta fans out as it moves into a bigger body of water. And it spreads out into all these little tributaries and these little, little, uh, little uh, streams of water that spread out over a large surface, but they're fairly shallow. And a lot of our lives are like that, where our lives are so spread out thin doing lots of different good things that we never get to make a big impact or go deep in any one or two particular areas. And maybe some of us need to say no to some good things so that we can say yes to a few things and really make a big impact there. It seems like that's what Paul was doing here. So sometimes to accomplish a bigger purpose, this is your takeaway. We have to say no to something good so that we can say yes to something better. Last week, I was talking with somebody here out in the lobby, and they said in a very nice way, um, I really wish you could have been at the men's breakfast yesterday. It was really great. would have been awesome if you could have been there. And uh, they, they were being very kind. They weren't being manipulative at all. But I said, you know, I, would, I wish I could have been there because I heard that was awesome. But here's what happened this week. On Monday, instead of uh, my normal sermon preparation, I ended up researching and recording a video all about the conflict in Israel, which I know many of you have seen now. It's part of the Five Questions podcast. And that meant that I had to bump a bunch of my sermon preparation to Saturday. But Saturday evening, I had a gathering with the elders and their wives for a few hours. And so I had to do my sermon prep Saturday morning. And so there's no way I could also be at the men's breakfast. And they totally understood that. And I said, if I were to go to all the good things there are to go to, I'd have to work 90 hours a week and never see my family because there are so many good things going on. There are so many good things to be at, so many things I'd like to be involved in, probably a lot of things you'd like to be involved in, but we can't say yes to everything. If we say yes to everything, we're probably not having a big impact in any particular area. And so there are times where we have to say no to good things that we want to do and be involved in so that we can say yes to the most important things, to the purpose that God has for our life. And I just wonder if maybe for some of you, there are some good things in your life that if you really want to make a significant impact in the area where God has given you purpose, you're going to have to say no to some good things so that you can say yes to the best things that God has for you. Well, Paul didn't leave on bad terms. In verse 21, we see that he says, I will come back later, God willing, And then he set sail from Ephesus. The next stop was the port of Caesarea. From there, he went up and visited the church at Jerusalem and then went back to Antioch. And after spending some time in Antioch, Paul went back through Galatia and Phrygia, visiting and strengthening all the believers. So that's what's going on with Paul. And Luke really just just gives us this summary. He doesn't even tell us what happened in each of these places. It's just this sort of brief overview. And then Luke is going to take us back to Ephesus for a little side story. That's super interesting. In verse 24, he says, meanwhile, that's almost like a a cartoon where it's just taking us to a different spot. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, an eloquent speaker who knew the scriptures well, had arrived in Ephesus from Alexandria in Egypt. Apollos is a guy we don't talk about in church a whole lot, but he's a fascinating guy. We know that he was from Alexandria in Egypt And we know that that community had a large Jewish community in it, very well-educated people. Alexandria was a source of knowledge and learning and resources, really incredible. You probably have heard of some famous smart people from Alexandria, like 
It attracted all the smart people of the world to go there. So Philo of Alexandria is from there. He's the Jewish uh, thinker who wrote extensively in Koine Greek about the intersection of Jewish religion and philosophy. Very smart guy. Uh, some weird stuff that he taught to, but very smart guy. Then there's Euclid, the mathematician. And uh, if you've if, you are, if you're a mathematician, you know he's the father of geometry and Euclidean geometry. And then there's non-Euclidean geometry. And he's a super smart guy. And Alexandria had one of the biggest libraries of the world. Massive collection of resources. So just a very uh, smart city uh, with a lot of really well-educated people. Alexandria was the place where the Septuagint was finally uh, finished in its translation and made available. And the Septuagint, if you're not familiar, is one of the most important works of the development of the scriptures. It's the taking of the Hebrew Bible and translating it into Greek by 70 or perhaps 72 translators. And Septuagint means the 70. Sometimes it's called LXX, the Roman numerals for 70. This is a very important work, translating the Hebrew into Koine Greek by these translators. And that was done in, largely in Alexandria. So it was a big deal this city. And it's a big deal that Apollos comes from this place because he's well-educated. He's eloquent. He knows the scriptures well. He may have even studied um, under some of these men while he was there. He certainly had a great education. And, and actually, a lot of people think that maybe it was Apollos who wrote one of the books of the New Testament that we don't have an author attributed to. Anybody know what that book might be, the letter? We don't know who it was. Hebrews. And so a lot of people think, hey, Apollos, well-educated, Koine Greek, a lot of that writing happening in Alexandria, that's where he came from. Hebrews was written in a, a more refined style of Koine than what Paul wrote in. And so maybe it was Apollos that wrote it. And that's a possibility. It's also possible that Luke wrote the book of Hebrews. Some people say Paul, Barnabas, Apollos, Luke. I think it was probably Luke. Um, similar writing style for, uh, for Luke in the Gospel of Luke. Either way, both of these men are involved in our story here because you've got Luke writing Acts about Apollos. And either one of them are probably the two, I think maybe the most likely candidates for writing the book of Hebrews. So what does Apollos do? Well, in verse 25, it says he had been taught the way of the Lord and he taught others about Jesus with an enthusiastic spirit and with accuracy. However, he knew only about John's baptism. I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago that there were other categories of people who were God-fearing people. They knew some things about God, but they didn't have the whole story. And Apollos is in that kind of weird hybrid category where he knows some things about Jesus, but he doesn't know the whole story. He knows about John's baptism. In fact, we'll see more about that next week. Andrew's going to be preaching, so I don't want to steal his thunder um, completely. I'll only steal a little bit of it. Uh, they, there's these people that Paul is going to encounter who know only about John's baptism. And so John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. It was repent because of your sins against God. And that's an important step, but it's not the whole story because then Jesus would come and make a way for those sins to be wiped clean and removed and his righteousness to come and be given to us and to be restored to God. And so baptism goes from just being about repentance of sins to now being a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and the death, burial, and resurrection of us as our old selves are, are buried 
and then made new by Jesus Christ and restored to him. That's what baptism becomes a picture of. And then, of course, there's the baptism of the Holy Spirit that comes in as a part of that whole process that, that Jesus and later Paul would talk extensively about. So Apollos didn't know that second part of the story. He's only talking about the baptism of John and Priscilla and Aquila, who John introduced us to last week. They are there in Ephesus listening to Apollos and going, wow, this guy's an amazing communicator. If only he knew the whole story, because they did. And why did they? Well, they just spent the last couple of years with Paul, working with him, traveling with him, making tents together. They learned from him. When, we, when we're first introduced to them, the Bible describes them as Jews, which I take to probably mean that they maybe not, were not believers in Jesus at that point, because they weren't believers who were Jews. They were just Jews. And so probably Paul led them to the Lord, or, or perhaps just strengthen their faith. But they undoubtedly, Paul can't keep his mouth shut about this stuff. They undoubtedly learned from Paul a lot of theology and about Jesus and all of this stuff. So Priscilla and Aquila are there listening to Apollos and thinking, my goodness, he needs to know more. This is verse 26. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him preaching boldly in the synagogue, they took him aside and explained the way of God even more accurately. Now, do you remember what happened with Priscilla and Aquila? This is a quiz. John talked about it last week. They were kicked out of Rome. They were deported for being Jewish. They were discriminated against. How discouraging was that? They had to move over 600 miles away, a very big deal back then. And of course, they do end up meeting up with Paul, which was huge in their life and, and probably was even, I think, the thing that led to their salvation. And they learn a lot from Paul, so that's good. And they travel a little bit with Paul and they get to Ephesus with Paul and then Paul decides to leave them and, and move on. And who knows, maybe Priscilla and Aquila were two of the people that were like, no, Paul, don't go. We want you to stay. And remember, Paul said no to something good so he could say yes to something better. And there Priscilla and Aquila are. Paul is gone. They've moved so far from home. They've, they've been outside of Rome now for over two years, I think, at this point. And they hear Apollos teaching. They go, wow, he's a good communicator. Wish Paul was here. Paul could really teach that guy a thing or two, you know? I mean, think about that. If Paul were there, wouldn't they be like, hey, you need to go connect with Paul and learn this. But that's not what happens. They get this opportunity because Paul is gone to go have an influence in this young, gifted teacher's life. If Paul's not gone, I'm fairly certain Priscilla and Aquila don't have this growing moment. Because Priscilla and Aquila are like, you need to connect with Paul. But Paul's nowhere to be found, so who is going to do it? Not the guy that was the eyewitness to stuff. Not the guy that had Jesus come visit personally with a blinding light on the road. Not the guy that had Jesus personally teach him all this theology. The ones who probably thought they were a little insufficient. The ones who probably thought, man, if only Paul were here, but he's not here. So we're going to go do it. And we're going to go sit down with Apollos. And we're going to share with him what we have learned so that he can know the same things that we know. And you know, there are a lot of people who I think are followers of Jesus, but they sit on the sidelines because they feel like, I just don't know enough. I haven't had the same experiences other people have. I don't have the same gifts that other people have. And they, and they think, if only, if only someone who were more knowledgeable and skilled than I would go do that thing, that would be great. And the, the reality is that probably the fact that you're thinking about it means that's something God wants you to get involved in. There's an opportunity that's there for you to serve in some way, to have an influence, to have an impact, to have some purpose in some way. And a lot of times we think, boy, I see a need, I see a problem. Someone should really do something about that. And maybe the person who needs to do something about that is you. Paul said to the Corinthians, 
God chose the things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who think they are powerful. Now, does God work through gifted people like Paul and Apollos? Absolutely. But God also works through people who don't think they're very gifted. In fact, maybe he even prefers it because then he gets the glory. So when it comes to your purpose in the kingdom, God wants your availability more than your ability. God wants your availability more than your ability. Availability plus ability is a great combination. So you should absolutely study and and work hard to get better and grow at whatever it is God wants you to be involved in. But if you have to pick one or the other, God will take availability all day long. Someone who is willing to say, I will give up of the thing that I wanted to do to be ready and available, God, for what you want me to do. And he provides the gifting. He provides the ability. He does great things to that because he chooses the foolish things to do things that the wise can't even understand. So here are Priscilla and Aquila. And I don't know, I'm reading into their story. But I have to imagine that they're thinking, boy, I wish Paul was here. But since he's not, they get to step in and have an influence with this young guy. And how does that work out? What happens? Verse 27. Apollos had been thinking about going to Achaia. Don't you love that word? I had to look up how that was pronounced. I didn't just know that. Achaia. Everybody say that with me. Achaia. You got to really get the sound. Achaia. Thank you. Good job. Boy, that's a weird. I don't want to do that again. You get hundreds of people going at you. It's like, not sure about that. He goes to Achaia and the brothers and sisters in Ephesus encouraged him to go. So evidently he wasn't as well liked as Paul. Because they said, Paul, don't go with Apollos. They're like, you should go. Anyway, they wrote to the believers in Achaia, asking them to welcome him. When he arrived there, he proved to be of great benefit to those who by God's grace had believed. He refuted the Jews with powerful arguments in public debate. Using the scriptures, he explained to them that Jesus was the Messiah. How did he know all that stuff? Priscilla and Aquila. They're the ones that filled in the gaps for him. They're the ones that taught him what he was missing. And he goes out there and he's this huge influence in the early church. In fact, it's not just Ephesus and Achaia. It's also Corinth. He ends up having this tremendous influence in the early church as a teacher, someone who they love and who ended up filling in the gaps for a lot of other people. And where does it all trace back to? The work of Priscilla and Aquila. In fact, you even get to a point where you've got believers who are saying, I'm a follower of Apollos and I'm a follower of Paul, but he's put up there with Paul. As far as like, I'm a, I'm a guy that, that people follow. And that's not what Apollos wanted at all. And Paul writes to the Corinthians to correct this kind of stuff. He says in 1 Corinthians 3, after all, who is Apollos? Who is Paul? We are only God's servants through whom you believe the good news. Each of us did the work the Lord gave us. I planted the seed in your hearts and Apollos watered it, but it was God who made it grow. It's not important who does the planting or who does the watering. What's important is that God makes the seed grow. You see, Paul understood that while his public image was kind of a big deal, and and he used his authority at times when he needed to in the churches, for sure. But he understood that at the end of the day, he was just a servant. And Apollo was just a servant. And they just had a different role in the kingdom. The most influential Christian leader at the time, Paul, is here saying, I am just a servant. So what do we learn from this? In the Christian community, Big shots aren't big shots. They're just servants with a different role, a different purpose. That's all it is. Everybody in God's kingdom has a purpose, has a role, has gifting, has ways he wants to use you to do good in the world for his purpose. And oftentimes in the church, in the family of God. And we're all just servants with a different purpose. And of course, it works the other way too. 
People who are more behind the scenes can have a massive purpose and impact. Sometimes that we don't even realize till a long time later. And so in the Christian community, less visible servants aren't less important. Not at all. They have a purpose with an impact that is sometimes only seen years later. If you think about the incredible ministry that Apollos had, that can all be traced back to Priscilla and Aquila, who were not out there public speaking, who were not eloquent speakers out there doing what Apollos was doing. Here's Apollos uh, accurately with what he knew, but missing a lot of information out there communicating as best he could information about Jesus and about God and about repentance. And uh, Priscilla and Aquila weren't doing that. But behind the scenes, they would quietly pull him aside privately and say, can we explain some of this to you? What an amazing role. What an amazing purpose. They probably weren't gifted to be public speakers. We're never told anything like that. But they had such an impact and influence. In the, I wonder how many of the people in Corinth knew that it was Priscilla and Aquila that made it possible for Apollos to come and give them all that great teaching that led to a bunch of them saying, I'm a follower of Apollos. How many of the people in Ephesus and Achaia knew that it was Priscilla and Aquila that were behind Apollos' ministry and all that he taught from that point forward? See, God uses us in different ways in the kingdom. And so my question for you as we kind of wrap up this message today is, what purpose does God have for you and his family? What purpose does God have for you and his kingdom? And it may not be like Paul, the guy who is is really outspoken and travels all over the place, bringing the gospel to people that never heard. That may be for some of you. For some of us, that's what he calls us to. It may not be for you like Apollos, uh, sort of an upfront ministry, teaching people, leading a group, those sorts of things. For some of you, it is. For some of you, it's like Paul, a missionary, an emissary sent to different parts of the world. For some of you, it's like Apollos, but probably for most of us, it's Priscilla and Quilla. What can we do to be faithful servants, making an investment into God's family and into the kingdom in ways that may not be discovered until years later? I think about the the people who serve in our children's ministry right now or our student ministry right now. Do you think that there are some kids down there today who 20 years from now are going to say, man, it was Judy Keffer or... uh, Roger Nancy Lockwood or uh, Rich Veerling or all these other people who are just faithful servants who are communicating God's love and God's word to me day in and day out. And that's why I'm such a committed follower of Jesus today. Don't you think that's the case? There are going to be people who you may not know their name. You may not even know the people I just mentioned. They're real people, by the way. I didn't just chat GPT that. They actually go here. But there are all these people who serve in ways that you may not see them or know who they are, but they're having a huge impact for the kingdom because they're faithful, because they're serving, because they're willing to be like Priscilla and Aquila, that quiet influence. And who knows what some of those young people are going to do one day for Jesus. It could be huge. So I want to close with this. If you're not involved in some kind of purposeful service in God's family, there's a really easy way for you to start that journey. And that would be by going to efree.org slash serve and finding opportunities for you to get involved somewhere. And I've already talked to other people this morning who said, okay, I'm gonna do it. I've been going here long enough. I haven't started getting involved. I'm gonna go do it. And I wanna encourage you, find your purpose in that. I've talked to other people who say, you know what? I've, I want to get involved in something outside the church, maybe with one of our ministry partners. That's awesome. 
But find your purpose in life and make a difference, whether it's as a Paul or a Apollos or a Priscilla and Aquila. Find your purpose and be willing to sacrifice, even to say no to good things, so that you can say yes to something better. We're going to take the Lord's Supper together now. And so as we turn our hearts toward that, I want us to just bow our heads in prayer. Everybody bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your teaching that helps us understand how you want us to live, the sacrifice that you made for us, so that we could have a life that is so different, radically transformed in in desires and motivations and the purpose of the world. And it's so different to be your child, but it's so wonderful. And now we remember, Lord, the reason that it's all possible. It all comes back to the death and resurrection of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, Emmanuel. We think about the Christmas season and you're coming to us, but this is uh, the reason we even celebrate that because of what you did for us on the cross, Lord. I pray that you would help us now as we do what you commanded us to do and remember your death and sacrifice for us to also remember the impact that should have on our lives that we now need to live for you. Tomorrow, Monday, we need to go out and live like what we talked about and sang about and listened to on Sunday really mattered and makes a difference in our life. And God, I pray that this act, this, this ritual, this reminder would be just one of those milestones in our life that brings us back, brings us back to what you did and what our response need to be for you. In your name we pray, amen. Well, it truly is a privilege to get to take the Lord's Supper together. And if you're new here, I should explain it a little bit because we may do it differently than you're used to. We're gonna pass trays through the pews And if you're a follower of Jesus, whether you normally go here or not, you're welcome to join with us. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you've never put your trust in him, I recommend just letting the plate pass on by you. This is really just for those who've committed their life to Christ. And there are gonna be two cups that you'll pick up in a stack. The bottom has the bread, the top has the juice, representing the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. We're gonna take the bread first. If you need a gluten-free wafer, uh, those are available in the middle of the trays as we pass those along. And as we pass the elements... I want to encourage you to take a moment and search your heart and ask God to search your heart. Maybe about the things that we've been talking about today, maybe about something else that he's been convicting you of. But now is a great opportunity to confess sin before God, to seek his guidance in your life, and to put into practice some of the things that we've been talking about today. I think everyone has been served the elements now, and we're going to start with the bread Let me read you some more from that letter to the Corinthians that Paul wrote. He said, for I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We thank you, Jesus, for your body, which was broken for us. And then taking the cup. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. And we thank you, Jesus, for your blood, which was spilled for us. I love the Christmas season. 
I love that we get to sing a bunch of Christmas songs this month. And we're going to do a lot of that over the next few weeks for sure. But it is important for us to always remember the reason why we celebrate this at all. It's because Jesus Christ came to this earth as a little baby, born in a manger, all of that, but so that he could live a perfect life and die for us as a substitute for our sins. There was a chasm between us and God, and he came and bridged that chasm for us so that we can have new life and awesome relationship with him. So as we close our service today, I invite you to stand with me and let's sing this song to God.